Uh, thank you. I can't tell you how excited I am and how much I've been looking forward to uh, this moment. Uh, I have to probably confess to you that when I first um, received this invitation and agreed to come to it, I'm not sure my motives were altogether pure. Um, I, uh, normally I have a team of people that helps me kind of evaluate uh, different opportunities and just what's a wise travel schedule. Uh, and when I saw this one and it said Hawaii, and then I saw that I could bring my wife with me, I sent a note to that team. I was like, I've got a real peace in my spirit that I think God wants me to do this. So um, a little known fact uh, is I think this is the third time that y'all have done this. Uh, the first time I actually asked to speak at the very first one. Uh, I, I got, got up with uh, Matt and uh, Justin. And I was like, hey, I really just feel like God's laid it on my heart to be out here for this. And and, uh, and, and Matt very graciously said, well, hey, I, I'm open to that, you know, just send me a few sermons and maybe I could listen to them. And so I sent him some of my very best ones, ones I, my wife thought were the best. And he sent me back a very short, polite note, says, man, I, I just don't feel like you're ready yet. I just don't feel like you're ready yet. So uh, I took it to heart and I've worked on my preaching for a year and the next one rolled around and I um, just sent him some more sermons. And I said, here's some more, I really improved. And I even, you know, wrote a book and here's a copy of the book and maybe you could do that. And he just sent me back a note and I said, uh, he said, man, I just don't I still feel like you're ready. And so uh, this one rolled around and I, so I sent him some more sermons and some more notes and he said the same thing, I just don't feel like you're ready. And I was like, man, come on, what have I got to do? I was like, man, I'll, I'll come for free. He sent back a note and said, now you're ready. And so... Um, <laughs> That's not entirely true, but <laughs> regardless, I, I've been looking forward to this, and um, I, you know, I may not have, uh, I may have been a little blinded by the place where it is when I agreed to come, but over the last um, few months, um, just hearing what God is doing in the churches here uh, in Hawaii and, and the things that are happening, you guys are in a new day. Um, and there is obviously the Spirit of God is stirring in the churches. And so to be able to be a part uh, of that for just a little bit, to be able to set up uh, some of my favorite speakers in the world, uh, some of the guys will be coming in later this afternoon, um, is a real privilege of mine. So uh, why don't we just jump right into it? If you got a Bible, I'd invite you to take it out and open it to Mark 14. Uh, Mark chapter 14, the theme of the conference for the next two days is the love of God. Love will make you do some crazy things. Uh, I am privileged, privileged to have here with me, uh, as I mentioned a moment ago, my wife of 16 years now, uh, sitting right here. Uh, I, uh, it was, what, uh, 17 years ago that I proposed to her. Um, and, uh, you know, every guy wants to have a special engagement story. I was trying to figure out how to, to really set it up so it would be great. She and I met at a camp. Um, I was the speaker at a youth camp. Uh, she was a counselor, by the way, not a camper. Um, and so... The very first time that I laid eyes on her, she was part of the worship team, and um, I just felt like that's the girl I'm going to marry. And so um, I, I arranged to go back to that very spot where she had uh, first laid eyes on her, and I uh, kind of tricked her into being there. She didn't know I was going to be there, and I had this, you know, I, I wrote this whole speech. Um, I remember rehearsing the speech uh, before because I memorized it. Part of it rhymed. Um, and I thought, this is it's beautiful. I thought, this is a fantastic. I mean, even if she doesn't love me, she's going to say yes after I give her this speech. And all I remember is getting down on my knee and just kind of blinded by the moment. And I opened my mouth to, for this beautiful speech to come out. And the words were coming out just like I'd memorized them. But it sounded like the dumbest possible thing. I mean, it sounded like I was going, just, you know, spilled it out there. Um, and finally, I choked. I think I skipped half of it and just jumped to the end. And I said, you know, so will you marry me? And, uh, I, you know, I'm down there on one knee. My wife committed what I consider to be the impardonable sin for girls that are getting asked to get married. So you girls that are single, listen to this. Um, she, uh, she didn't say anything. She just kind of like stared at me for a while. And then she grabbed my head because I'm down on one knee. She grabbed my head. She pulled it kind of into her stomach. And she started to go like this. 
you know, I can't breathe, one. Um, two, I'm like, what does that mean? Does this mean like no? Does this mean yes? Does this mean I feel sorry for you and I don't know what to do? But um, eventually she said yes. Um, I, you know, in many ways, uh, it was kind of the worst moment of my life in some factors. Um, but I would have gone through it a thousand times over uh, because she said yes. Um, because uh, love makes you do some crazy, crazy things. And I was happy to go through a moment like that because I was in love with her. Um, I want to do my best for a few minutes to pull back the curtain on the love of God for the world and ask what crazy things that it might drive us to do. Mark chapter 14 is one of those passages that I really feel like, um, I feel like there's no possible way I can do justice to it. I feel like I kind of ought to go through it on my knees it's a, a holy place, maybe one of the most holy in Scripture, where all that I can say or do falls so far short of what is actually happening. And we ought to not spend a lot of time talking about this, I feel like, but we ought to just read it and, and tremble and worship. There was a British pastor named D. Martin Lloyd-Jones who 60, 70 years ago was asked to comment on um, the preaching controversy in his day, which was whether sermons should focus more on you know, relevance and action steps, or whether they ought to focus more on doctrine. What was the more valuable contribution? It's amazing how 60 years later we're discussing the same thing. And uh, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, he said, well, I'm, I'm not sure that either of those ought to be the focus of a sermon. The, the goal of a lecture is that you leave with information. You leave with a page full of notes. The goal of a motivational speech is that you leave with action steps. The goal of a, of a gospel sermon is that you leave worshiping. So it's my prayer that in the next few minutes, there will come a point at which the pens go down and the eyes go upward and we think not, oh my God, look at what I've got to do for you, but oh my God, look at what you've done for me. And so why don't we pray as we just get into it, not just for these moments that I'm going to spend with you, but for the rest of the afternoon, that God will open our eyes to see what human tongues and what human ears are incapable of seeing. The natural man cannot perceive the things of the spirit. They are spiritually discerned, which means that unless the real preacher shows up and opens our eyes, we'll never be able to say, behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. No man can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit that sheds abroad the love of God in our hearts. So why don't we ask him to do what only he can do? Why don't you bow? Let me pray for you one more time. Father, Father, there's probably nothing more precious in all the universe in all of history, then what we're going to look at for the next few minutes. Father, I pray that you would take the blinders off of our heart. I pray that those of us like me who are slow of hearing, whose hearts are calloused and have even gotten too familiar with these things, would sense and feel these things anew, afresh. I pray that we would have a tenderness, God, that would weep over our sin and would weep in rejoicing over the grace that has been given to us and that we would, maybe as if it felt like for the first time, behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we, we, sons and daughters of wrath, should be called children of God. God, give us eyes to see, we pray, we pray. God, angels long to look into these things. Let us see what they long to see, we pray in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Mark chapter 14, let me just read you the passage, it begins in verse 32. And they, that is the disciples and Jesus, went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John, and he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death, remain here and watch. 
And going on a little farther, he fell on the ground and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Daddy, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them, the disciples sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, why are you asleep? Could you not watch even one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know how to answer him. They were embarrassed. Verse 41, and he came a third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It's enough. The hour has come. The son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise. Let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And they lifted up their eyes and There coming toward them was Judas with a faction of temple guards coming to take Jesus away to the trial and the crucifixion. Now, one of the things that we have to notice first is that Jesus, hear me out on this, hear me out, does not go to his death with the defiance and the bravery that we would have expected. In fact, if you're just reading this passage, Jesus appears weak, almost scared, And it's ironic because a lot of the world's greatest heroes have died with their fist in the face of the evil empire. Think of the scenes portrayed in movies like Braveheart or Gladiator or something like that, where they died defiantly saying, you don't scare me. I'll never back down and I will have my vengeance in this life or the next. Other Jewish heroes had died that way. Spartacus, Maccabees, also from the same time period, they're going to die Um, At Roman hands, they're going to die defiantly and bravely in ways that inspire courage. Plato says that Socrates, when he was executed, was cool and stoic. When he was given the hemlock, poison hemlock to drink, he, he was calm. His color of his face didn't change. He even cracked a few jokes before his death. It was defiance. Many of Jesus's followers would die that way, defiantly. Polycarp, the student of the apostle John, legend goes or story goes, and when he came to take him away to be burned at the stake, he went very calmly. And they asked him what he would like to say before being burned at the stake. They tied up his hands. An 86-year-old polycarp says, you think I'm afraid of this fire? It's going to burn for just a minute, and then it's going to be extinguished. You ought to be afraid because you're going to burn in the fires of hell. Come on, boys, bring on the fire. That's defiance, but that's not how Jesus went to his death. In this chapter, he's trembling. Mark says that he was under such travail that he fell down on the ground, verse 34. He couldn't even stand up. He seems weak, almost scared. And what's really strange about this is that everywhere else throughout the Gospels, Jesus was the one who showed unflinching courage in the face of danger. Right before this, Jesus' disciples had told him that he was crazy for going to Jerusalem because he was sure to be in danger there. Yet Mark says that he set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem. Jesus had always been the bold, brave one. And of course, it's not like he's withering in the face of pain because the first aspect of torture is yet to begin. Martin Luther said, never has a man feared death like the Son of Man seems to be afraid in the Garden of Gethsemane. What has caused this sudden change in demeanor? Verses 33 and 34, there's a very strange phrase. It says, he began to be astonished and troubled. In Greek, literally it says, suddenly he began to be astonished. In other words, all at once. Jesus saw something, in other words, in verse 33 suddenly that hadn't been there in verse 32 what appears in verse 33 it's not named 
but we know that he was troubled by it. The word troubled is a very strong Greek word that means overcome with shocking horror. Scholars say that it indicates the kind of feeling you would have if you came home one evening and found your family had been murdered and mutilated, their bodies strung up on the wall or something. What Jesus sees is so overwhelming that he almost dies from it. See verse 34, he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. That's not an exaggeration. Jesus was not prone to exaggeration. In fact, Luke, the gospel writer, says that he was under such strain that he began to sweat great drops of blood, a medical condition that doctors now call hematridosis, where the, where, where the capillaries in your face and your extremities are under such strain and stress that they literally burst. I had a friend who um, has kids that are, well, at the time, his kids were, I think one of his kids was uh, six and one was four, and he had a two-year-old son. And he said that as, they, uh, as uh, he and his wife were at the pool one afternoon, as they got to the car, they realized that they were the last ones at the pool, it was their, their, their neighborhood pool, they get out in the car and they realize that their, their youngest son is missing. And so they run back to the pool to try to figure out where he's gotten lost and they see what is every parent's worst nightmare. They see their two-year-old son at the bottom of the pool, the deep end of the pool. So they jump in and they pull him out and he's not breathing. So they begin to give him mouth to mouth and they call, they call 911 and the EMT comes and make a long story mercifully. Um, it ends, uh, he, they revive him. And they get him back to the hospital, and they, the doctor says he's going to be fine. But because of the event, we want to keep him here overnight so that we can at least observe and make sure that everything's okay. And, and uh, my friend said that as I, I, I stood there over my son, watching him, he's asleep, he's breathing normally, but I see all these little purple blotches all over his face. And so I called the doctor, and I said, what are all these little purple blotches? And the, son, the, 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 the doctor said, well, evidently, when your son, right before he lost consciousness at the bottom of the pool, Evidently, he was screaming so loudly for your wife or you, somebody to come and help him, that literally the capillaries in his face burst. Here is Jesus. I want you to let this set in for a minute. Here is Jesus, the only begotten Son of the Father who spoke the worlds into existence, who spoke in galaxies, spun into being, who walked on top of angry waves who would calm the fiercest storms, cast out demons, heal diseases, bring back the dead to light, so horrified at something that he sees that his capillaries burst, nearly causing his death. What did he see? Verse 36 may give you an indication. Notice what he prays. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. He calls God Abba, Daddy, the term of closest intimacy, but for the first time ever in the Gospels. Scripture records no response from the Father. You see, up until this moment, Jesus has enjoyed an intimacy with the Father. He often withdrew to be alone with God to draw strength. And the Father had always radiated back toward him with, with openness, sometimes even affirming him publicly, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. But now, in the hour that Jesus needs him most, there is only silence. And so he stumbles back to his disciples looking almost for some kind of comfort. And they're asleep. And that there's something kind of tender in that. It, he, he wakes him up and says, guys, I need you to be with me. He needed somebody. Yet they're asleep. And so verse 39, he goes back again to the Father and he says the exact same thing. His disciples are asleep, his Father is silent, and he calls on his Father a second time, and again, only silence. What's happening? New Testament scholar William Lane says that the only explanation is that God had already begun to turn his face away. 
The crucifixion has already started. Before the first nail was driven into Jesus' body, Jesus' soul had been abandoned by God. You see, Jesus had lived his life for the approval of the Father. He called that the bread for his soul. And now in the moment that Jesus needed his Father most, God the Father turns his face away. And Jesus staggers under the weight of it, almost to the point of death. William Lane, again, here's how he says it. This is the horror of one who lived wholly for the Father, who came to be with his Father for a brief interlude before his death and found hell rather than heaven open before him. Utter and total aloneness. Have you ever felt alone? I don't mean just physically you're alone, but a trusted friend turns on you. Somebody that you care about betrays you. A spouse turns his back on you or her back on you. Your parents fail you. Jesus felt that. Not just aloneness, but the pain of rejection. Have you ever been really rejected? It's what Jesus went through. Here's one thing I know about rejection. The closer the relationship, the greater the pain. As a pastor in a, you know, a, a public position, from time to time I get letters, some of the most hateful letters from people that I've never met who tell me I'm the worst human being that they've ever stepped foot in North Carolina. And those things, they don't really bother me because they don't know me, I don't know them, it's just kind of a, an annoying letter. But to get that same kind of letter from, say, my dad, who I'm very closest to, who would say, I'm ashamed of you, to say that you're an embarrassment to me and I don't want any more relationship with you, That would be devastating. I've known my father for only, relatively speaking, a few years, 43 years. And he's not a perfect father by any means. What was it like for Jesus to lose the infinite love and approval of the father that he had known from all eternity? Is there any analogy for this? There's really nothing to which I can compare it, nothing that will really help us understand Anything human that I come up with only takes away from the bitterness and the tragedy of this moment. Somehow in these moments, Jesus experienced the equivalent of an eternity in hell for us. Because that's what hell is, total abandonment by the Father. There's an old praise song we used to sing that had a little phrase in it, I'll never know how much it cost to see my sin upon that cross. There's probably nothing that we ever sing that has more truth in it than those words. In Gethsemane, Jesus stared into the horrors of hell and then he voluntarily went into them for us. Because see, that's what the essence of hell is. It's complete abandonment by God. See, when I grew up, I always thought what made Jesus' death so bad were the physical horrors. And yes, they were terrible. We know that they beat Jesus until he was barely recognizable. The Roman historian Cicero says it was not uncommon that during the beating itself, during the scourging to see a, a rib from a man's rib cage go flying off of his frame, we're certain that Jesus, when he was done being beaten, was at least partially disemboweled. The prophet Isaiah says he was beaten to a point he doesn't even look like a man. His own friends and mother couldn't recognize him. Then he was nailed up in a cross, naked, with a crown of thorns on his head in a public place in the full light of day. So yes, the physical horrors of the cross were terrible. But listen, in Gethsemane, that is not what is making Jesus stagger. What's making him stagger is the abandonment by God that he faces. That was the horror of the cross for him. In Gethsemane, Jesus looks full into the cup of God's wrath, and it overwhelms him so badly that it almost kills him. And so he prays, if there's any other way, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. But there was no other way. Isaiah 51, 17 says that God's wrath had been stored up 
like a cup, like a toxic poison kept in a cup, and that cup was offered to Jesus. Actually, it was offered to me. Jesus stepped in the way, and he took it, and he drank it. Jonathan Edwards used to describe it like he said, imagine that you were standing in front of a valley, and there was a dam that suddenly broke loose, and hundreds of feet of water come rushing at you. There's no possible way you can escape. There's nowhere you could run. Death is certain. And he says, right before that water comes and sweeps you away, the ground at your feet opens up in front of you, and all that water gets sucked into the ground, and not a drop of it touches you. He says, what happened at the cross is the wrath of God's, uh, the, the river of God's wrath, like a flood came at us, and Jesus stepped in the middle. He took the cup. He drank it to the dregs. He turned it over, and he said, it is finished. If, there'd be, if I'd have been there, if you would have been there and tried to stop Jesus and said, don't do this, he would have said, no, no, J.D., this cup is your cup. There is no other way. By the way, can you think of any greater insult that you could give to Jesus than to suggest that there are multiple ways to get to heaven? After Jesus goes through this, as if the Father was like, actually, there are other ways. If you'll just be sincere here and do this, you know, all roads ultimately lead to me. What greater insult could the Father give to the Son? There was no other way, which is why the Father turned his back on his Son and Jesus took the cup willingly. That's what Jesus was willing to do because he was not willing that any should perish. He was determined that of his sheep, he would not lose a single one because God so loved the world. He so loved you and me that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we could be called the children of God. Here's what this scene should make us do. I'm gonna give you three things. Number one, we should stand amazed at his love for us, for you, during his darkest hour. Jonathan Edwards asked the question, the great American theologian of the 17th century, 18th century. He asked the question, why, why did God give us this scene? It almost seems superfluous, doesn't it? I mean, on the cross is where he's really going to experience the wrath. So why give him this advanced kind of glimpse of it in Gethsemane? In fact, if you think about it, it's almost, Jonathan Edwards said, kind of dangerous because it could actually influence Jesus to go the other way. If you gave him a glimpse, why would you give him a glimpse? Why not wait until he was fully fastened to the cross and then let him see what was about to come. Here, Jonathan Edwards asks, answers his own question. It was so we could see Jesus. Watch this. It was so that we could see Jesus go to the cross voluntarily. Knowing that he knew full well what he was about to experience. So that his love for us would be put on display even more. Gethsemane is recorded so that you and I can see Jesus know what he's about to go into and choose to do it anyway. Another gospel account tells us that Jesus refused vinegar that was offered to him, a commonly used narcotic to dull the pain. Why? I mean, even if he took the painkiller, he would still have paid the penalty for our sin. The answer, it was so that we could see the extent of the price he was willing to pay to redeem us. God wanted to save us, and this was the only way. God demonstrates his love for us. Now, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. One of the accounts says that an angel came to minister to him at this point. I often wondered, that poor angel, what did the angel say? I mean, you give him a John Piper book on having joy and suffering. I mean, what do you do at that point? We don't know. The writer of Hebrews 12 says, or whatever transpired there, that when Jesus, listen to this, when he got up off of his face in Gethsemane to go to the cross, he does so, Hebrews 12 too, with joy. 
with joy in his heart because of something that had been set before him. What had been set before him? What did Jesus have on this side of the cross that he didn't have on that side? Oh, I know the Father's approval, right? Yeah, sure. But that was his before he left heaven. The Father couldn't have loved Jesus anymore before he left heaven. He, he wasn't doing this to gain the Father's approval. Or maybe he was a rule over the universe. He had that before the foundation of the world. He didn't need this for the, for the rule of the universe. That was his. The adoration of angels, his before time began. What did Jesus not have on this side of the cross that he didn't have? Or what did he going to gain on this side of the cross he didn't have on that side? The answer is very, very simple. Like you learned it in Sunday school. You. Me. Isaiah says he paid a great ransom because we were, this is a staggering word, precious to him. Precious. Precious means you give up anything to, for that thing. Right? I mean, my kids are precious to me. I have four kids. They're all precious to me. And so if the doctor comes to me and says, one of your kids has a disease and there's no cure. And, well, actually there is a cure, but it's not been proven by the FDA. And so insurance won't cover it. And it's going to cost you hundreds of thousands. Of, you're going to have to sell your house. You're going to have to mortgage your future. Everything that you own, you're going to have to get rid of it in order to purchase this medicine. Without a second thought, I would give away everything I have, everything I'm going to have, everything I'll ever have. And I'd give it all away in a minute because my kids are precious to me. Here we see that the God of the universe regarded sinful sons and daughters to be precious to him to the point that he's going to give away everything to get them back. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene, and I wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. This scene is given to you so that you could stand amazed at his love for you in his darkest hour, which then will lead you to number two. Then you can trust in his love for you in your darkest hour. You see, because Jesus has faced utter aloneness, rejection by God in my place, I never have to fear really being forsaken by God because he's taken it all in my place. I would imagine that many of you in this room have gone through some tremendously terrible things. You felt like God has abandoned you. You weren't abandoned by God. This shows it. And it's even popular for some Christians to say, well, yeah, I'm just going through my Gethsemane. I do not mean to minimize your pain, but you no, know you are not. You will never have a Gethsemane. You will never be forsaken. Jesus was forsaken so that you could be assured that you never would be. So see, when you say, where was God? Why didn't he stop it? We can't always answer that. But Gethsemane helps you see that the one thing that you can never doubt is his love for you and his commitment to you. God has a purpose beyond what we can see. I've heard it described like a tapestry. Sometimes you can see one of these beautiful tapestries, you know, beautiful picture on the front, everything not a thread out of place. You flip it over in the back and it looks like a chaotic jumble. Sometimes in that chaotic jumble, we see God doing his greatest work. I mean, think about the events of the cross itself. The disciples didn't understand what was happening. Never in history had there been a time where it looked like God was more out of control. Yet we know now on this side of it that never had there been a time when actually God was more in control and God was doing his greatest work. Here's the question. If God was doing his greatest work during Jesus' darkest hour, don't you think he might also be doing his greatest work in your darkest hour? 
if Jesus didn't turn his back on you now, in this moment, do you really think he's going to turn his back on you in the moment you're in now? John Owen, the Puritan, said that the greatest unkindness you could ever give to Jesus in light of the cross, the greatest unkindness is to doubt his love for you. I can't explain everything that's happening in your life. Nobody can. Yeah, I can see how some things lead for good in my life, and I can point to chapters like that, but there's a lot of big old question marks in my life saying, God, if you really love me, I'm not sure why it happened that way. God, if you really were love, I'm not sure why you let this chapter in history happen. What possible good thing could have come out of that? I can't explain everything, but what I can point you to is the love of God that is demonstrated in Gethsemane. A lot of times what we want is explanation, and what God gives us is revelation. We want an explanation of the why, and God gives us a revelation of the who. So if you feel abandoned by God, you're wrong. You have to be. If Jesus didn't abandon you at this point when hell was literally squeezing the life out of him, then he won't abandon you now. Not in your darkest hour, not in your weakest moment, for any reason whatsoever, not ever. Number three, we should let this vision shape your life's ambition. This vision ought to become the shaping force of your life's ambition or your church's ambition. I'm going to get a little bit into what I'm going to talk about in our fifth session tomorrow, but do you realize what Gethsemane tells us about Jesus' willingness to save sinners? Would you stop and kind of reflect that for a minute? Is there anything too great to ask of this one who walked through this willingly? When you think about what he wants to do in the state of Hawaii, what are you asking him to do? Is there any request that is going to exhaust the limits of his love? Have you forgotten who you're praying to? This is the one that you're praying to, the one in Gethsemane. The one who willingly saw it, willingly went through it. You've probably heard, you may have heard the story of Alexander the Great. I don't know if this is a true story or not, but I've heard it multiple times. You got to um, one of his generals, after the world conquest, comes to Alexander and says, Alexander, I've served you faithfully my whole life, and I got one request. My oldest daughter is, is going to get married, and I want you, if you will, to help me pay for the wedding. And Alexander said, you've served me faithfully. I would be happy to pay for the wedding. Just go tell the treasurer what you need, and he'll take care of it. Treasurer comes back to Alexander and says, you need to discipline this general. Alexander said, why? He said, because he has requested funds for the largest wedding that Greece will ever have seen. I think he invited the whole country. He spared no expense. He's taking advantage of your generosity. The story goes that Alexander kind of thought for a minute and then smiled and said, no, give him everything he asked. And the, the treasurer said, how could you do that? He's taking advantage of you. He says, no, he's actually paying me two compliments. One, he thinks I'm wealthy enough to afford this. B, number two, he thinks I'm generous enough that I'll give it. So my general honors me by the largeness of the request that he makes. Does the way that you dream and plan and what you ask God to do in your church and through you, does it bring honor to God or does it insult the Jesus of Gethsemane? Thou art coming, said John Newton, to a king. So with the large petitions bring. For his grace and power are such that none can ever ask too much. I'll just go ahead and say, and I, I don't know what category you'll put this in, but I will tell you that the problem with our prayers and dreams are not that they are too big, it's that they are entirely too small. William Carey, the father of the modern missions movement, said the world has been forever changed by people who expected great things of God and then attempted great things for God. Notice the order he puts those in. 
Expectations come first. Attempts come second. Great attempts come from great expectations, and great expectations come from seeing Jesus in Gethsemane. His love has not changed. The same Jesus that was moved with compassion when he saw the multitudes, the same Jesus that kept pressing on, the same Jesus that willingly took this cup, the same Jesus who prayed, Father, forgive them, is the one who prays for our nation and for the peoples in Hawaii today. What's it look like to dream for the future through the lens of that vision? Our church has a number of goals that many have just flat out told me are audacious, ridiculous, We've asked God to let us plant a thousand churches out of our church by 2050. We've asked God to let us baptize at least 50,000 people in the Raleigh-Durham area. We've asked God to let us be involved in three church planting movements in Muslim unreached people groups around the world. You may call that grandiose ambition. We believe it's faithfulness to the God of Gethsemane. You say, well, yeah, I know about your church though. I heard it in the introduction. It's a big church. You can do that. There's nothing wrong with a small church. There is something wrong deeply wrong in light of Gethsemane with having a small vision. Something deeply wrong with that. Oh, yeah, but people are so hard today. I mean, Hawaii is a difficult place, and just all this stuff, these obstacles, and it's just not the same way it is. Have you forgotten who you're praying to? This is the God of Gethsemane who says, ask of me. Just ask, and I'll give you the nations as your inheritance. I can raise up children of Abraham from the stones. One of the saddest verses in all the Bible to me is probably Matthew 13, 58. little verse that probably anybody knows. Matthew 13, 58. Many mighty works Jesus did not do there because of their unbelief. You know where there is? Nazareth. Now, you know where what's special about that? Jesus came from Nazareth, which means all of Jesus' friends are in Nazareth. So it wasn't like Jesus didn't love the people in Nazareth. It wasn't like he didn't have a... In fact, if you'll hear me, I know where I'm at, Gospel Coalition. I'm one of you guys. But it wasn't even that he was not sovereignly willing to do it. Oh, it just wasn't the sovereign will to do miracles there. That's foolishness. It doesn't say that. Many mighty works did he not in the city of Nazareth because, not because he had sovereignly appointed, but because of their unbelief. That's what it says. It's like, I would have liked to have done it. I was willing to do it. I didn't do it because there was nobody there simply to believe and receive and put into action what I had promised. You know, Jesus did not die so that we could huddle together in churches and bemoan the dying state of our culture. Jesus died so that we could transform our cities and bring the nations to worship. You call it great, grandiose dreams. Somebody else calls it faithfulness to the God of Gethsemane. There's a prayer that I pray almost every day. Form the substance of a book I wrote a few years ago called Gospel. And I'm not trying to promo the book here because that's really tacky. Um, and every time you promo a book in a conference like this, an angel loses his wings and a puppy dies in heaven. So I, I wouldn't do that. But so please don't put this in that category. But there's something, the book is built around this four-part prayer. I try to pray every day. It's a way of putting the gospel at the center of my heart to teach me how to pray. The phrases go like this. I think I got them here for you. Um, do I? Well, I'll just do the first one. In Christ, there's nothing I can do that would make you love me more. Nothing I have done that makes you love me any less. What it means is, in Christ, I'm not trying to win your approval. God, there's nothing I can do that make you love me more, nothing I have done that makes you love me less. I can lay down my quest for approval. Here's the second phrase. You're all I need for everlasting joy. See, my heart, like yours, is a serial idolater, and I'm always inventing new things that I need to be happy, and I just remind myself, all I need is God's approval, and I got it in Christ. Number three, as you've been to me, so I'll be to others. 
That's a gospel-shaped worldview. It's as I've been being given grace, I'm going to give grace now. Here's the fourth one. Watch this. I'll ask for things according to the compassion you've shown at the cross and according to the power you demonstrated at the resurrection. I'm going to filter my request through the Jesus of Gethsemane. And I'm going to say, I know how you feel about these people and I know how you feel about this person. And so I'm going to ask and I'm going to ask boldly because I believe that when you call on the God who went to Gethsemane, that your prayers actually change. They are reshaped. And that you begin to ask things that are in line with the compassion he demonstrated at the cross and the power he showed at the resurrection. Do you have prayers that are worthy of the gospel? Is your church's ambition in line with this vision? I'll tell you one, I'll I'll close by taking you one other place. You don't have to turn there in your Bible. I'll put it back up here just... As I was meditating on these things, this verse, the verse I've used with our church staff, and I'll share it with you. It seems like a random verse, but hang with me as I land this plane. Thus says the Lord of the house of Israel, do not seek Bethel and do not enter into Gilgal. Do not cross over to Beersheba. Seek the Lord and live. It seems like a random list of Hebrew cities, doesn't it? It's actually not random at all. Bethel, if you know your Bible history, that was a place where God appeared to Jacob and the whole ladder deal. Um, Gilgal, that was the place where Israel emerged after wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And then they crossed the river right there, um, the Jordan River, and went over and you know, defeated Jericho. It was where God wiped away the reproach, he said, of the, the wilderness wandering. Beersheba, that was the place where Abraham had actually been given the covenant by Abimelech to get the promised land. So let's just suffice it to say, these are three spiritual high points in Israel's history. These are three moments when God moved powerfully on earth. Evidently, by the time that Amos is a prophet, the children of Israel had grown accustomed to sitting around talking about the good old days of Beersheba and Gilgal and Bethel. Wouldn't it have been awesome to have been there when God appeared in the latter vision? Wouldn't it have been awesome if Man, to be there and see the walls of Jericho, that would have been awesome to see the walls fall down. And if you'll let me put a very, a very uh, rough translation on this verse, I think essentially what God says in Amos 5 is, would you shut up about Gilgal? I'm sick of hearing about Beersheba and Gilgal and Bethel. I'm sick of hearing about it because you're acting like the greatest things that I've done are something I did in the past and not something I want to do in your future. If I could be so bold, I wonder if God sometimes looks at movements like this one and he says, would you shut up about the Reformation? And I'm kind of sick and tired of hearing about the early church. The early church was a messed up group of people. Have you read about them? Some dude sleeping with his mom. I mean, it's just like, it doesn't get worse than that. Those weren't the good old days. And would you shut up about the modern missions movement? I'm tired of hearing about the Billy Graham revivals. It's not that these are not things that we should talk about and, and cherish. It's that... We began to treat the great activities of God as if it was something that God did only in the past, like he was a God of yesterday and not a God of today and a God of tomorrow. Listen, the greatest works of God are ahead of us, not behind us. They have to be. There's still 6,400 unreached people groups in our world. They all are going to be reached with the gospel by the time this thing is done which means that the greatest activity of God is not yesterday, it's got to be today. 
It's got to be tomorrow. The greatest days of spiritual outpouring are ahead of us. The gospel shows us how much he loves us and how committed he is to finishing the mission. Our church has 250 of its members living in church planting teams around the world. The majority are in Muslim unreached people groups. And a lot of times their work is hard. And a lot of times it sees very little fruit. I was with one of our teams recently in a particularly difficult place. And I told them the most important work they could do is to believe in the God of Gethsemane. Just to believe it. In fact, I told him, I said, well, here's what it's going to be like. It has to be. It's, you're going to be like the woodpecker. You know, the, you ever heard the story about the woodpecker who's like tapping away at the telephone pole, not really making any difference, you know, just making noise. When all of a sudden, while he's tapping, um, a lightning bolt comes from heaven and strikes the telephone pole and splits it in two. And the little woodpecker's like, you know, kind of looking at the pole. And then he goes over and flies and gets some of his friends and he brings his friends back. And he's like, there she is, boys. Look at what I did. I'm like, that's what you're going to be like. You're just tapping away, just doing what you're doing in the Muslim world. Seems like it's making no difference when all of a sudden that lightning of his promise, the lightning of compassion when Gethsemane strikes and you sort of back away in your little days and then you just say, I knew it. I knew it would come. I knew it. I knew it because he promised it would. The Jesus of Gethsemane showed me his compassion and he showed me his power and I just believed it. John 6, the most important work you'll ever do is believe. You want to work the works of God? How do we work the works of God? He said, this is how you work the works of God. You believe on him that we said. More important than what you do for God is believing in the love he showed at Gethsemane and letting everything flow out of that. Why don't you bow your heads and let me pray over you. God, I began this by asking that you open our eyes to see and behold. I pray that this love would saturate us so that our marriages, our families, our friendships, our futures, our ambitions in our church would all look different because of what we have seen and what we behold. I pray for those who are lonely and broken. I pray that your love would become their bread. I pray, God, for those who are in need, God, of vision, encouragement, and enlarging. I pray that you would stoke the fires of their heart through Gethsemane. I pray for those who are frustrated at how slow the work is. I pray that they would not give up knowing God, that our work for you is steadfast because of the resurrection and that you will accomplish all that you have purposed. God, I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.